Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Now these are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Then He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Father, so even as Paul prayed that prayer for the church at Ephesus and, and beyond Ephesus, we pray that we might have our eyes enlightened, the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we might receive wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus this morning by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was Sunday evening before Jesus finally appeared to all the gathered apostles in that upper room. Of course, Thomas was absent from school that night, but Luke tells us... That on that evening, when Jesus appeared, having waited the entire day, mind you, to appear to His chosen apostles, we're told in Luke 24, 44, He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Can you imagine that? You know what? You don't have to, because by His Spirit, He opens our minds to understand the Scriptures. You know, that's kind of what we're doing here this morning. That's why we pray that His Spirit would teach us, that our minds would understand the Scriptures. The Scriptures are not given to be elusive. The Bible is not given to us to be a, a difficult book, hard to understand, but to open our minds. Well, Jesus opened their minds to understand. They finally would get it. Luke twenty four forty six. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Now, I would love to have been part of that Bible study. To listen to him describe from the Scriptures, mind you, the Torah, the Tanakh. That is Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, and the Nevi'im, that is the prophetic Scriptures of the Hebrew Bible, and the Ketuvim, that's the writings. They call it the Tanakh. And that's what Jesus explained himself from. That's what he used to teach them, to show them that the Christ would suffer and rise on the third day. Where does it say that, Jesus? I would have asked if I had been sitting there that night. Where does it say third day? Well, it's fascinating to discover what in fact took place on the third day. If we go back into the Hebrew Scriptures, back into history, 475 years or so before Christ, many of the Jews were living in what was called the Diaspora. The diaspora, if you hear that phrase, it means Jews living outside of the homeland. 
And it began in 586 when the temple was destroyed and has continued ever since, although we see in this, in this day, in this generation, the Jewish people coming home. But the diaspora, they were all over the place. And there in Persia, we read a story about a young woman named Esther. Esther chapter 5 verse 1 says it came about on the third day that Esther put her royal robes on and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. If you know anything about the story of Esther, you know that to to come before the king when you are not summoned is to put your life at risk. You could be taken and killed. She took a big chance on the third day It's so interesting. Why would the Bible tell us it was on the third day? What does that have to do with anything? Well, it was on the third day that Esther Esther risked her life to secure salvation for her people. So you think that's where Jesus was teaching from? Oh, I'm just getting started. That's not definitive, but go back another 250 years before that, around 700 or so years, 750 maybe before Christ, King Hezekiah. In the days of Isaiah the prophet, Hezekiah learned that he was dying. Isaiah came to him and said, get your things in order, Hezekiah. The Lord says you're about to go. And he wept and he moaned and he tweeted. You can read it. He did. He had a Twitter account. I I kid you not. And he begged God to extend his life. Listen to this. 2 Kings chapter 20 verse 5. The Lord sent Isaiah to say, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. Interesting. A people saved. A a king revived. But don't stop there. Another 750 years earlier. Now we're back to 1500 B.C. We find Moses bringing the law. Torah law to the Jewish people. And Numbers chapter 19 verses 11 and 12 gives us an interesting uh, prescription, if you will, for ritual cleansing. That is, if a Jewish person touched a dead thing, a dead person was in the presence of death, they had to be cleansed, ceremonially cleansed. And so what they would do is they would wash themselves. They were required to wash themselves on the third and the seventh day. Why those two days? Ask the Lord. But the third day, again, rises in prominence in the scriptures. Another law was added to this, a strange requirement. For the sacrifice of peace offerings, this comes out of Leviticus 19, verse 6, which says, it shall be eaten the same day you offer it. The peace offering, it was like a holy barbecue. You know, the person would bring the offering to the temple, to the Lord, and they were to eat it there with the Lord. Basically to camp out and and, and share the food. And the Lord says, you got to eat it the same day you offer it, and the next day, but what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it's an offense. It will not be accepted. What's the deal with that? I mean, I've had a a, a burger on the third day. You know, you stick it in the fridge, pop it in the microwave. Yeah, it's going to be more chewy. But, But what's the deal, Lord? You must eat it all before the third day. Why? Because the sacrifice must be finished by the third day. Interesting. Still, perhaps not definitive, but you'll never guess which day it was when God came down on Mount Sinai to meet the children of Israel. Exodus 19, verse 11. He said to Moses, let them be ready for the third day. By the way, are you ready for the third day? 
God said, let them be ready. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Exodus 19.16, it came about on the third day. So now it's repeated. When it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled and that happened on the third day. Draw back further. Still not convinced of the prominence of this third day mentality in the scriptures. We go back another 500 years before Moses. We go all the way back now to a man by the name of Abraham. And in one of the most stunning and stirring pictures of God the Father and Christ the Son, Abraham is told in Genesis 22, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go sacrifice him in the place that I will show you. Sacrifice my son? Oh, you may have heard the story. And so Abraham, by faith, goes off to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Yeah, he had had Ishmael, but the the son that God recognized, the son by faith, the son by promise, the son through whom all the promises would come, including the Messiah, Isaac, go sacrifice him. So Abraham sets off. And in Genesis 22, verse 4, it says, On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. What would happen on that day? He saw Mount Moriah. He climbed Mount Moriah with Isaac. He built the altar. He put the wood on the altar. He prepared the fire for sacrifice. Isaac, at the same time, asking, Father, we have the wood, we got the fire, we got the altar. Where's Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says... God will provide a lamb. And then he binds Isaac's hands, puts him up on the wood, is about to sacrifice him, raises the knife, and we're told the angel of the Lord stops him. Don't do it. Hang on. I've seen your faith. Now what's interesting is that was all on the third day. What happened on the third day? Isaac was saved. What's interesting is that 2,000 years later, at the same place, God the Father did not spare Jesus the Son. But Isaac was spared. Salvation came on the third day. Don't stop there. Go all the way back to creation. Ever think about this? What happened on the third day of creation? Let me read it to you. Genesis 1, verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, a third day. Great, so the fruit trees were planted. What's the big deal about that? Well, isn't it interesting that the first ripe fruit that planet Earth saw happened on the third day? Well, why? 1 Corinthians 15.20, Paul writes, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The third day, it is implicit throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, this picture of important things, of salvation, of people seeing God, of first fruits, of all this happening on the third day. But but maybe you're one of those who wonders, I hear about this three-day stuff, but I happen to know, because I read that on Friday morning he was crucified, and on Sunday morning he raised, and by my calculations, technically that's just two days. So it really doesn't work. Nice try, Christians. Technically? Well, let's get technical. 
Exodus chapter 12, verse 6, speaking of the Passover, says, You shall keep it, the lamb, until the 14th day of the same month. That month is the month of Nisan. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. The Passover lamb was to be sacrificed at twilight. What does that mean exactly, technically? It, it's, it's the phrase in Hebrew, Bain Ereb. And Bain Ereb means between the evenings. When God prescribed the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, He said it needs to happen any time between the evenings. That is, Thursday evening to Friday evening. Any time in there is when the Passover lamb must be sacrificed. Think about this with me. Thursday evening to Friday evening, one day. And it was dark. From the upper room to the garden to the betrayals and the trials and the beatings of Jesus, the flogging of Jesus, by 9 a.m. between the evenings, still Passover, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was on the cross between the two evenings. Before sundown, the beginning of a Sabbath, Jesus then would be in the tomb on that day. And that's all just the first day. The second day, Friday evening to Saturday evening, was dismal. A Shabbat of shock, you might call it, as his followers are numb and his body lay wrapped in the tomb the second day. Saturday evening gave way to Sunday morning. And in between the evenings, the third day, the divine dawning. Three days. See, you've got to think as a Jew, because the Bible was written primarily to the Jewish people, through the Jewish people, with Jewish understanding. And so, Thursday evening to Friday evening, one day. Friday evening to Saturday evening, two days. Saturday evening to Sunday evening, three days. And the rabbis were very clear that any part of a day is a day. From evening to evening, three days. And the third day was the divine dawning. Oh, let's, let's look at the story. It's Matthew chapter 28. If you want to turn your Bibles over there and just read this through, we cannot go through the morning without hearing this again. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, I'll read slow so you can catch up. As it began... To dawn. After the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Well, of course, if you come all the way from heaven, you're a little tired. Sit down, have a little break. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. You know, when we go to Israel, one of the last stops on the tour is the garden tomb. Is it the actual tomb of Jesus? We don't know. 
It's interesting. Its location is is very compelling. But what happens is you we have a, a communion service there and we'll worship and then we'll go down to the actual garden tomb. And lots of groups do this. So sometimes there are people lined up. And it's so funny to me. I sit back and watch this now. The first time I was there, of course, I went right in in the second and third and I think the sixth. But, but the last time, I stood back and just watched. And people are lined up going into the tomb. It's the weirdest thing in the world. Who lines up to go into a tomb? And they go in and they'll kneel down. Sometimes if there's not a lot of people, they'll stay in there longer. If there are a lot of people, the lines are, are everywhere. And, and there's a door on the tomb, which is a, a unique addition of modernity. But they're in there, they're kneeling down, they're praying, they're taking their time. And I see the angel going, come see where his body was. Now go, go, go. What are you doing here? What are you hanging out in the tomb for? Why are you waiting? Go to the disciples. Tell him he's risen. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So that's the message to the two Marys. Now you really have to read all four gospel accounts to get the full picture. Matthew gives us a little bit. Mark gives us some. Luke gives us another part of the story. And John rounds the whole thing out. And there's so much here, we're not going to cover it all this morning. But it's interesting that the angel told the two Marys, they both heard, go tell the disciples to go to the Galilee. That's the message. And I will meet you there. Says they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. And then he repeats the message. Go take word to my brethren to leave for the Galilee and there they will see me. But he couldn't wait. You know, he, he couldn't. That afternoon, Luke 24 tells us a couple of guys are on the road on a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And Jesus just couldn't help himself. I guess he shows up. They're, they're in shock. And they're even more shocked that this fellow traveler who meets them on the road doesn't know anything about what's just happened in Jerusalem. All the events that had taken place. This one everybody thought the Messiah was now crucified. And now some of the women have actually come and, and said something about him not being in the tomb that, that they saw an angel. And, and it's just, it's crazy. Of course, one of the women was crazy Mary who used to have seven demons. So we really don't trust her anyway. These guys are telling the story to Jesus and they don't even know it's him. Haven't you heard about these things that have happened? And, and he's like, what? No, tell me. Amazing. And we're told that with those two men, one of them was named Cleopas, that in Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Well, they apparently reached Emmaus and he was going to continue on. And they said, no, please come, come stay with us for it's late. The hour's late. Come, come and, and, and sup with us. And they go in. And if you've read the story, you know Jesus broke bread. And the moment he broke bread, their eyes were open. They realized it was him and he vanished from their sight. Man, they got the Easter surprise of their lives. But think about this. So far on that Easter Sunday, on that glorious resurrection day, the only people now who have seen Jesus are the two Marys, Mary Magdalene, And the other Mary, not Mary the mother of Jesus, but one of the other Marys. And the two travelers. And none 
of the eleven? Why didn't Jesus appear immediately to them? Why didn't he just go to them? Why wait? Well, these two guys raced all the way back to Jerusalem, a seven-mile run. They found, now, by the way, that was the first Easter marathon, was that day. And they found the disciples, still glum, still befuddled by a tale of two Marys, trying to figure this thing out. And while they were mid-story, Jesus finally shows up. They're in the upper room before the ten. Remember, Thomas is still not there, and Judas, well, he's a different story. Thomas. He's also called Didymus. I like to call him T. Diddy. Or D. Tommaso. That one works as well. Thomas was absent. And so, guess what happens? A week later, when Thomas is with him, Jesus shows up again. He just couldn't wait to meet him in the Galilee. He keeps showing up. Why? And why didn't he meet with the apostles right off the bat? I think it was because of faith. Because Jesus understood something that he would tell them. He was giving them every chance to believe without seeing. Go tell them, he says to the Marys. That the apostles would have a chance to believe without having actually seen him. Uh, Go tell them, the two men on the road to Emmaus. That they might believe without seeing. Do you realize what a blessing it is to believe without having seen? See, you all this morning are part of that blessing. You believe without having seen. That's not blind faith. All the evidence is in. The facts are there. The word is true. But we get to believe without having seen. So he didn't wait to the Galilee. He finally shows up after leaving clues in the tomb and and the Marys and the men from the road. And Jesus finally says, now a week later to all the guys gathered there, John 20, 29, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. But there's another question I got to ask. Why are they still in Jerusalem? Go to the Galilee and you'll see me there. I'll, I'll meet you in the Galilee. And a week has gone by. And they are still in Jerusalem. It's about a four-day journey. They could have been in the Galilee by then. And Jesus said, this is where we're going to meet up. Well, what if I go and He doesn't show? What if I do what He says and it doesn't work out? Ever have that thought? Besides the fact, we saw Him here. This was where we experienced Him. Why would I go there if I experienced Him here? And so people get stuck. Let me just encourage you, by the way, if Jesus sends you, don't worry, He will show up. If He says, meet me there, He will meet you there. If He leads you to another place, He will be with you there. So they finally did head north, and of course Jesus showed up many times to many people over many days, 40 days in all. To as many as 500 people at one time. And Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It's a great story. It's a marvelous truth. But it means so much more. So go back to Ephesians and tune in. That was just the introduction. 
in this heavenly letter. In this letter in which the church is in its ascendancy. That's what we said last week. You see, Paul is writing to encourage the church, not only that Christ is ascendant, but that the church is now lifted up in and through Christ Jesus. And it's a marvelous encouragement. It is the pinnacle of Paul's letters. And now he pins a prayer. There are two prayers in the letter to the church at Ephesus and through the church at Ephesus. Two prayers of Paul, here in chapter 1 and another one again in chapter 3. Tell you what, anytime you see prayers in the scripture, pause and pray them. Because there's power there. And so in this prayer, Paul reveals the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just as a past event, not just as an annual holiday event, but in everyday life of every believer, what the resurrection actually means, what it does. Verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints... Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. By the way, little side note, this is why we think that Paul was writing through Ephesus and not just to Ephesus. That this letter was to be circulated. Because he knew the people in Ephesus. He was closely tied to the church of Ephesus. He would know many, if not most, by name. And yet here he writes, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus that exists among you and your love for all the saints. As if, well, I've heard of it, but I haven't actually seen it. He had seen it in Ephesus. So this letter is going to Ephesus to be spread throughout all of Asia, and off it would go. And he says in verse 17, here's the prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Him whom? Jesus. A spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. Now, note this. This is the only place in all the Bible where a certain title is used for God, and it is Father of Glory. It's the only place. Where Paul says that the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Father of glory. Now, there are many places that refer to the God of glory. Psalm 29, verse 3, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus is called the Lord of glory. But Father of glory only appears in this sentence at the top of this prayer. And it's perfect. Because, you see, He is the source of all glory. He's the Father of glory because He's the one who births glory. He's the one who brings glory. He's the one who seeds glory. He's the one who produces glory. He is the only one who is glory and who glorifies. And we ought to remember that in this world in which we live because it is not humanity that brings glory. It is not the size of the crowd applauding the the performer that brings the glory. It's not the the largesse of the attempt to, to make a name for yourself that brings the glory. Human glory is frail and spindly as life itself. Human glory always fails. Human glory is always limited to a moment in time. My friends, the glory of the resurrection was not a moment in time. It is a moment for all time. 
still gloriously being celebrated today. Human glory? I might have a big moment, a big event. Trump won the election. Wonderful. But what's happening? People are protesting. Still, show us your tax returns. It's like it's kind of irrelevant at this point. But moments of glory, big. And they fade so fast. And they're gone so quickly. 1 Peter 1.24, he quotes Isaiah 40 saying, All flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you, Peter says. The Father of glory. He is the source of all glory. And He is the source of the wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. And what does that mean? Very simply, that the more you know Him, the more you will know wisdom and revelation. It's not the other way around. i got to figure out Jesus. i got to have wisdom to understand Jesus. I need a revelation so I can believe in Jesus. No, you gain those through relationship with Jesus. That the wisdom and the revelation come from Him. Can I just encourage you, if you're ever struggling in your faith, one of the best things to do is grab a gospel and read. Just sit down and open up Mark. Man, it's a fast-paced read. Or, or open up John and see the divine in Jesus. Open up Matthew and recognize He is the King of all Israel. Or open Luke and read of the Son of Man. If your faith needs a boost, go to Jesus. And very practically, very simply, read of Him. Think about Him. And you will find yourself receiving wisdom and revelation. But get this, know this, wisdom and revelation, we may place a high premium on these things, but they are byproducts. They are secondary to knowing Him, to the knowledge of Jesus. And so from creation to the resurrection to your current condition, God wants you to know Jesus. Why? Because in knowing Jesus, we know God. And God wants to be known. By the way, God doesn't want to be known in the way that we might want to know Him. In the way that we might feel like we need to see Him this way, or He needs to be this for me, or that for me. And then people begin to make God after their own image, and the Bible calls that idolatry. No, He wants us to know Him as He is. As He revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, I can read a gospel, but how do I really get to know Jesus? Like I said, read it. Pray them through. And you will begin to find more than head knowledge. But listen, check this out. In the second prayer of Ephesians, this is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. Paul says that we might know, he prays that we might know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. To know Jesus is to know something that goes beyond knowledge. It's not about studying a book so that you can learn certain facts about Jesus. It's finding out who He is and it is falling in love with Him. Oftentimes at second service, when we pray for the kids to go out, we'll pray 
that they will just fall in love with Jesus. That it will be a a love feast, as it were. Now you might say, alright, but you're saying that as a mere mortal, I can know God. I can have knowledge of or understanding of Jesus that brings wisdom and revelation. And that all sounds wonderful. It also sounds a little spiritual. You got it. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. He continues and says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Enlightened? He's not saying lighten up. He's saying get lit. Get lit up. The word enlightened here, fotizo, it means to shed light. Paul says, I, I, just, I pray that your hearts will have light shed all over them. That you will suddenly... And gloriously have light. It is the aha moment that he's praying for. And and, and if you are a believer in Jesus today, you've had the aha moment. You have had a moment in your life, and it may not have been bells ringing and stained glass shining and, and lights pouring down. It may have just been a moment where you said, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Lord, I I'm going to accept you right now. Not even knowing what's going to happen. I believe. And then you go. And maybe nothing happened. But you believed. And the light began to click. Ephesians 5.8 says you were formerly darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. How do you walk as children of light? Well, if we are, if we are walking in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It means no pretense, it means no games, it means just be real, man. Just be genuine, ladies. Be honest with each other. If we're flawed, that's okay. Share that, pray for each other. If I'm struggling, alright, confess that, pray for each other. Walk together in the truth. Let's not pretend we're any more glorious than we are. Remember, He's the Father of glory. And the light goes on. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. Now, for some people, that is a, an instant on. Click! Let there be light. And there is light. For other people, it's kind of like those new LED bulbs. You have those in your house? I hate those. I want to click the switch and I want it to go bing and be bright. In my garage, I've got the long LED lights now, and I go and I turn, now what I've started doing, I turn on the light and I go away and wait five minutes. So that when I go back in there, I can actually see. Otherwise, I turn them on and it's just, it's very dim. And it slowly comes, and some people are like that by faith. Some of you are a little dim. No offense. But for some, that's what happens, you know. The Bible even says, now I see as through a mirror darkly. I have just enough faith to say, yes, I believe that Jesus died and believe He resurrected. What does that mean? I'm not sure. The light's coming on, but it's coming on slowly. And you know what? Whether you have instant revelation and realization, wow, it's all true, it's all good, and I'm going to heaven, or it's like, I think so. Either way, get this, God is into the long term. God is into the relationship. The couple that meets and is the same day married is a foolish couple. God says, let's get to know each other. Let's walk together. Yeah, but I don't understand. It's okay. It's okay. Just Let's just go one more step. But Lord, what about... It's all right. 
What if we don't go to the Galilee when you tell us to? I'll get you there. Notice Jesus never gets on them for not having faith to do what He asked them to do. He just says, Alright, look at my hands. See the scars. Look at my side. Blessed are those who have believed and have not seen. But it's cool. I'll give you what you need, dim ones. (laughs) It's interesting, a great true story of healing. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Jesus heals a blind man. And it's one of the most odd healings in the Bible because it says taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, which is classic compassionate Christ. He gets him away from the people. And then spitting on his eyes, he laid his hands on him and he asked him saying, do you see anything? The man looked up. Well, I see men like trees walking around. So obviously not very clear. Then again, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and he was restored and now he began to see everything clearly. I read that healing and I think, was Jesus just a little off that day? You know, be healed. Are you healed? Well, I kind of... Okay. I'm sorry, I just wasn't warmed up. You know, it's kind of an LED moment, if you will. Oh, come on. Sometimes healing takes time. Sometimes faith takes a little bit longer. Wait for it. Let it come. Don't stress because it's not an instant on, an immediate wonderful moment. Just keep praying. Pray for enlightenment. Just keep praying. Pray for your family and your friends. There are people you have prayed for, you've talked to about Jesus, and every time you talk to them about Jesus, they're just like, or they get angry. You know, the light's not even dim. It's just purely off. Keep praying. Keep asking. Some are just a little more dim. But the the real way here to gain this spirit of revelation and wisdom is for the Spirit to give it. The way to receive it is from Him. So if you're dim, if you're slow in faith, if you're slow of heart, ask Jesus to lighten you up. Invite Him to open your eyes. Well, I tried that once. That's your problem right there, Vern. You tried it once. It's amazing how we human beings will do that. Well, I prayed. When was the last time? Well, it was recent. 1987. Well, I did. I went to church. I tried the church thing. Really? How long? Well, I went for, you know, Easter... 2003 walk it's a slow walk get to know him give him time to work in your life 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 2 says if anyone supposes that he knows anything he is not yet known as he ought to know but if anyone get this loves God he is known by him That's the thing I look for. That's the number one thing. If someone says, I'm not sure where I'm at with Jesus, I want to hear them say, I love Him. If you can say you love Jesus, you're fine. You might be a little dim, but you're fine. We're walking. If I can say I love Jesus, I am in His tender care. 
Remember, it is the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. And love, love just implies time spent. It implies time together, company sought, dates kept, being with Jesus. Do you love Him? Are you with Him? Are you willing to obey Him? 1 Corinthians 12.3 Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. I pray that you will know You'll have wisdom and revelation by the knowledge of Christ. Now, get this. To be enlightened by Jesus is to gain three amazing realities. And they're all direct from the text. Verse 18 again. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So you will know what is number one. The hope of His calling. What are number two. The riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And number three. What is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Number one. The hope of His calling. And that's real hope. Hope. Hope is the bright spot on the horizon of our future resurrection. Hope in Jesus. But it's more than just a hope for something that's going to happen in the future. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. When? Now. I hope for then. I see Him now. I live for now. I'm alive in Christ now. And then. That's hope. It's a hope that is realized, and it is a hope that both that, that also looks forward. We have this marvelous, glorious hope of resurrection in lives that are already coming to life right now. Now, now speaking of the future of our hope, people don't understand that we Christians are not invited to cloud-sitting in some vague, obscure, nebulous concept of the afterlife. Is that your hope? If you're a follower of Jesus and someone says, what happens after you die? Well, I think they're going to give me a little harp. You know, Larry's going to have a harmonica. (laughs) And something about clouds and, I don't know. Really? What are you doing if that's all you're looking forward to? Cloud hopping. Boring. I don't even like harp music. No offense, Rachel. But I don't. I'm not a big fan of the pling. And that's the hope? No. Read Isaiah chapter 11. Read Isaiah chapter 65. Check out Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 21 and 22. Read the passages of Scripture where heaven is described and lifted up before you. And then tell me, do you have hope? Look at these things. He's not leaving us in the dark. This is not nebulous. We have a future and a hope that is stunning, is remarkable. You know what's ironic to me though? Is that the ambiguity and the vagueness is in this world. It's how people outside of Christ live. What do you mean? I mean, I'll give you one example. A friend recently asked for prayers on Facebook. And I read some of the responses from some of these people responses like this sending positive vibrations your way I 
can get positive vibrations from going to Jumbo Burrito. I mean, what are they talking about here? Someone else wrote, warm thoughts and good vibes. I'm like, seriously? Good vibrations was a thing of the 60s. Have you seen the Beach Boys lately? Vague. Oh, yeah, positive vibes. In fact, by 1980, good vibrations was downgraded to a sun-kissed orange soda commercial. There's your good vibrations. Drink it up, burp it up. There's your good vibrations. Unbelievable. And people live with that. They, they claim that Christians are, are foolish or not, or, you know, in your faith that you're blind, and yet they live in such vague ambiguity. What's going to happen after you die? Isn't that kind of a big question? When you die, what then? I hadn't really thought about it. <laughs> what? How can we not think about that? I think about it every day. More and more. The older I get. With every runaway hair, I'm like, death is coming. I mean, I would be a terrified man if I didn't know where I was going. And I know exactly where I'm going. And I guarantee it's going to blow my mind when I get there. Far beyond all that I could ask or imagine. And yet at the same time, I have some sense of the glory of God, the Father glory, the presence of Jesus, of gathering with the saints around the throne and worshiping and being there and being loved even as I love. And the whole thing, I see this. And it's a reality that excites me. That's resurrection, my friends. And that is the hope in His calling. It's real hope. It's not the vague stuff people are handing out in the world. You know, smoke a little weed and have some positive vibrations. That's the best the world has. I I don't get that. Paul says we have a blessed hope. Titus 2.13 And Jesus, He spelled it out for us. He said in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. What happens after death? Well, you're going to live. And then Jesus said, And everyone who lives and believes in me, i.e. is alive when he calls us home, will never die. And then he adds this simple phrase, Do you believe this? And see, here's the truth. I'm going to lay it out for you. The question is, do you believe it? Do you buy it? Jesus also said in John 14, 2, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Is that unclear? Is that vague? No, that is the hope. The real hope. Of his calling. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's the second thing that we can know. Now we've talked a lot about our inheritance lately. It's come up several times in these letters of Paul. So I'm not going to really spend much time on it this morning. Except to say that this one isn't even ours. This is his inheritance in the saints. We can know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. His inheritance? Yeah. Psalm 22 verse 30 says, Posterity will serve Him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. That's written at the end of the Psalm of the Cross. That's ironic. 
Because if you read Psalm 22, you, you read about this man crucified, crying out, dying, and then, but his posterity will serve him. Not in a vague way like his children's children's children will somehow remember him and con- continue on his name. No, they will serve him. Because after he's dead, he's alive. And he's available to be served by his posterity. After describing the death and the burial of Jesus, Isaiah the prophet said, Isaiah 53 verse 10, He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good measure or the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Meaning? Meaning follower of Jesus, you are his inheritance. It's you. You are his posterity. I am part of his his joy. It's us. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew 12.50, Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's my fam. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 12, verse 2, Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You know what that joy is. It's you. You are the joy set before Him. You are what He looked straight through the cross to see. You are the reason He was willing to go through it. Because you, because I, we are His inheritance. The riches of the glory of His inheritance. Oh, the hope of His calling. And thirdly, finally, the surpassing greatness of His power. Verse 19, toward us who believe. And note this, he says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Power, working, the word working there is literally operation, strength, might. Listen to those powerful synonyms. All speaking of the greatness of his power. And all this was on full display when God raised up Jesus. The power of his might. Verse 20 says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says, Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Now get this, the surpassing greatness. We're back to resurrection. Think about the resurrection. F.F. Bruce said, if the death of Christ is the supreme demonstration of the love of God, the resurrection of Christ is the supreme demonstration of His power. Love on the cross, power in the resurrection. And it's bigger than that, what Paul tells us here. It's not just resurrection power, it's ascension power. It didn't just stop when Jesus came out of the tomb. It continued as He lifted off from the Mount of Olives and ascended back in glory. Jesus wasn't just raised from the dead. He was raised up to be seated with God at the right hand of God in the heavenlies. Note that. Paul says it. Seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. What does that mean? He's seated to the right? Positionally, it is the seat of the air. The heir apparent. The one rising to the throne. The idea is that Jesus is in ascendancy. That He is the one lifted up. And it was prophesied a thousand years before it happened. What was? The ascension. 
Psalm 110 verse 1, which says, The Lord says to my Lord. Now, stop right there. (laughs) David says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. The word is Adon, from Adonai. Yahweh said to Adon, is God talking to himself? Let me make it a little more clear, because Jesus points it out later on. The Father said to the Son, The Lord says to my Lord, listen, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What's he talking about? The ascension. He's saying, Father to Son, you're back. You've done everything. You've accomplished it all. To Telestai, I like that word, Son. And now you're home. Sit at my right hand. Psalm 110, verse 1, is about the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God. And it blows my mind because David was privy to this conversation about the ascension of Christ a thousand years before it happened. (laughs) How does that work? How is that even possible? It's not a problem if you're outside of time. You know, if you're the I am. David hears this. Of what would come. He writes it down. Psalm 110 verse 1. How about this? Philippians chapter 2 verse 10. It will soon be that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Resurrected, ascended, commanding Christ. And He's the Jesus to whom we look forward. He's the one... We're going to see. Verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, that is Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, listen, we can go big. We can talk about his dominion, his authority over the heavenly powers, over the spiritual authorities. He has all authority over all of that. Cherubim, seraphim, angels, demons, spiritual principalities. He's got all authority over that. But listen, all things would include small things. He's got authority over all things. What do you mean small things? Addiction? Um, marital strife? Broken hearts, medical conditions, financial crises, doubt, despair, fear, frets. Anything that would try to take or that you would allow to take dominion over your life, he's over that. He has dominion over that. It's all under his feet. He's got the power. He's got the authority. Let this, let this dawn on you as if it were resurrection morning right now. That in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, all things were placed under His feet. And so what does that mean? It means, not only does Jesus' resurrection promise a future resurrection for us, It means that His fullness fills His body, the church, right now. Right now. And we as the church, we need to understand the power that we wield. 
The power that we actually have. If all things, get this, if all things are under His feet and He is head over His body, that means all things are under your feet by His authority. In Jesus' name. I mean, doesn't that stand to reason? If we are the body of Christ and He is the head and all things are under His feet, where does that put us? Over all things with Him. What are you saying? Are you saying that that then we should never get sick? No. Oh. Whoa, whoa. Does that that means we can name and claim all riches? No. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we are not dominated by any of that. All things are under his feet. Therefore, nothing has dominion over me that he doesn't have dominion over. There's nothing in my life that can dominate or drive or rule me that He isn't greater. His resurrection proves it. His ascension shows it. And His presence in the body reveals it. And if the big things are under His feet, why do we allow the little things to trip us up? If He's in dominion over all things, can you imagine standing there outside in the tomb and seeing the rock go... And the angels appear, and the Roman guards go, "Ah!" and Jesus walked out. Let me just ask you, if you were there in that moment and saw all of that, would you be going, man, this hangnail's just killing me. (laughs) This is great, Lord, but i got to go do the bills. Wonderful, Jesus, but I have pain in my side, and I'm going to go see the doctor about We allow the little things to have so much power, so much dominion over us. And yet Paul says in Romans 8.11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Well, then I should be healed of my disease. Maybe. But understand, the dominion of Christ is stronger than skin. It is firmer than flesh. It's mightier than muscle mass. The dominion of Jesus is life now and forever. That there is no fear and no worry and no despair because I'm under His dominion. Which means what happens to me happens to me. I love Jesus. Where my life goes, my life goes. But I'm going to trust the Lord. I may not see how I'm going to get through tomorrow. But you know what? Blessed are those who believe without seeing. I live for a risen Savior who brings life to me. Jesus wasn't raised up to leave you for dead. Jesus didn't ascend to leave you in the dust. He fills His body now. And He showed up on the third day. He always does. On the third day. Ask Esther. She knows. Hezekiah, he got it. Moses, the children of Israel, Abraham, ask creation. They all know God shows up at the right time on the third day. Oh, by the way, one more prophecy of the third day. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. Some of you Bible students are grinning because you'll love this one. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. What does that mean? Come on back next week and I'll tell you. <laughs> you want a sneak peek? Look at chapter 2, verse 4. 
God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And if if we can apply Psalm 90 verse 4, A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. If we can apply 2 Peter 3.8 with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day, then my friends, two days have gone by since His resurrection. What will happen on the third day? I expect He will revive us. He will raise us up that we may live before Him forever. Let's stand up together. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul made the resurrection of Jesus that very true event Back to life from the dead, he made it central to faith and salvation. He said by the Spirit of God, you got to believe in the resurrection. Believing in church tradition will not get you home. Believing in a way of doing things is not going to save you. But claiming Jesus as Lord, having dominion over your life, and believing, even if it's dim, That Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, guess what? You will resurrect. And He wants to begin the resurrection process in your life right now, right here today. Some are just dying. Living in the vagueness of this world, not sure where they're going. This morning you have heard the truth about the resurrection of Jesus. The question is, do you believe it? Will you believe it? And if you have never made that statement of faith and never believed in Him, while we sing this song, I invite you to come forward and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and claim belief in the resurrection. And then we'll talk with you about what to do next. And the light will just get brighter and brighter. Hold fast in your seats. We're going to worship a song, give people a chance to respond. If you need to respond in any way to Jesus this morning, not not to me, but to Jesus then I invite you to go to any one of the four corners of the room and be prayed for. Father, I pray for the body right now. I pray for everyone present that there will be a move of Your Spirit among us and that faith will come. Lord, I pray for the person who is struggling to believe that this morning will seal the deal, that the light switch will go on. I pray, Father, for those who have never confessed Jesus, who have been living in vague ambiguity, that today this will all become enlightenment, a realization of the truth. And I pray that Your Spirit just make room for us to pray and to come forward and to come to You, Lord. Bless Your name, Father of glory, and all glory to the Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Won't you come to the Lord as we sing this song?